You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. You can kind of tell that I'm not in my normal home studio. It's because this is a Q&A that's happening from the road. I happen to be in the state of Tennessee visiting my son, and we're having a lovely time here together. So I'm here to do our normal question and answer. If we've never been introduced before, um, I am not currently pastoring a church, but for 35 years, I've been a pastor of churches, three different churches over many different times. I also had a uh, ministry at a Bible college where I was the director of a small international Bible college in Germany. I did that for seven years. But for the past, oh, almost six years now, I've given my full-time attention to an online Bible commentary that I have. So at EnduringWord.com or at BlueLetterBible, BLB.org, there are some people who find my verse-by-verse commentary on the entire Bible to be helpful, and we have a substantial work of translating that commentary into other languages. Because a free Bible resource is appreciated, I think, in any language, it's pretty rare to find these free Bible resources uh, in other languages. And this is one of the things that we found as well, is that uh, we just find a great blessing in making our materials available absolutely free of cost. So except for the print books, which we offer, you got to pay for the print books. Other than that, our commentary online, our app, uh, our YouTube content, our audio, our video, uh, all of that in all these different languages, it's offered completely free of charge. We don't even run paid ads on the website. And we do that uh, just because God's given to us freely and we like to give it freely. And I think we have a lot more viewers and users because it's offered free and without ads and such. Uh, We don't have any VIP levels. I don't have a Patreon. We're not doing that kind of thing. So anyway. All right. Enough with that. I want to get to our lead question for today. Uh, Our lead question comes from Brandy by email. And uh, I'll be looking down at my notes to deal with this question, reader question. So if you'll tolerate that. Here's Brandy's question by email. Dear Pastor Guzik, I watch a lot of your Bible study breakdowns and find you easy for me to understand, and I watch your Q&A. Me and one of my best friends, we talk about the end times prophecy and about the rapture and great tribulation, and we were talking about the babies and children, and we're a little stumped. What about those babies and children who are forced with the mark of the beast by their parents? Are they damned to hell, or does Christ redeem them? Well, Brandy, that's a great question, and uh, I'm happy to answer it. Uh, Let me just give you a quick summary answer to the question. Uh, I'll put it to you this way. No one who is forced to take the mark of the beast or has had it imposed upon them against their will has truly taken the mark of the beast. And I would say that that includes babies, children, or anyone else for that matter. I mean, I can imagine a scenario, I'm sure you could, where there could be a faithful Christian. And I I don't know, let's just say that the mark of the beast is applied with some kind of, you know, machine or, you know, device. And here they are, they're holding the Christian back and they're, 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 you know, making sure that they don't move and they impress that mark on their forehead or on their right hand. And ah, you've made them an all the time they were struggling against it and trying not to. Well, look, I don't believe that that person has truly taken the mark of the beast. And I'll tell you why. I have a biblical reason for this. Is because five times in the book of Revelation, where the mark of the beast is mentioned, it's mentioned in association with worshiping the beast and his image. In other words, truly receiving the mark of the beast will be an act of worship. It will be a pledge of allegiance to a satanic, God-opposing ruler and the state that he stands for. That's what the mark of the beast will be all about. Now, I have to say, sort of, whenever I talk about these things having to do with 
prophecy or eschatology or what the Bible says about the end times. Um, there's a divergence of opinion in the Christian world about this. I, I never try to be uh, shy about saying that. Uh, th- there's, there are some Christians who really love the Lord uh, and they take the Bible seriously, maybe not as seriously in this regard as I wish they would, but, but they take all of this as being purely symbolic. There is no beast. There is no mark of the beast. And they think that it's sort of silly for someone like me to think that there will actually be a prominent world-dominating leader in the very last days who's going to require everyone to worship himself, his state, his image, and to receive a mark either on their forehead or on their hand as evidence of that submission. And, And to think that you will not be allowed to buy or sell unless you take that mark. Now, for those people who think that all of this in the book of Revelation, again, I've read these people. I know they're out there. I've I've read their arguments that these are all symbols. These are all apocalyptic pictures. It's foolish to try to correlate them to real events, either in the present day or in the near future. It's all symbolic. It's not actually true. Look, to those people, I just say, look, whatever. That's, That's your take on the book of Revelation. I don't share it. But but I'm of the thought that if these many passages in the book of Revelation that refer to this coming world leader that's called the beast, if they don't refer to a real person, if it doesn't refer to a real mark, if it doesn't have a connection with some real kind of worship, if it doesn't refer to something that's actually received on either the forehead or the hand that someone can't buy or sell without it, if it's all just symbolic— if it doesn't mean what it says in any kind of meaningful way, then I'm just of the opinion that it can mean either anything or it can mean nothing. It doesn't really matter. But I think it does matter. And so I think these are things for us to read and understand. And uh, people can get spun out in weird directions of these things, of course, but they can do that with any passage of the Bible. But let me just read to you some of these passages in the book of Revelation that connect the mark of the beast with worship of the beast. Here, uh, Revelation chapter 13, verses 15 through 17. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Okay, the requirement of worship. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Did you see the connection? Worship of the beast, then the mark of the beast. Revelation chapter 14, starting at verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now down to verse 11 of Revelation chapter 14. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Okay, I could read to you from Revelation chapter 16, verse 2, Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, but they all come back to the same thing, making a real and vital connection. Again, I, I actually, there's two of them mentioned. One, so there's six different places where there is a connection made between receiving the mark and worshiping the beast. This means no one is going to receive the mark of the beast accidentally. It will be connected with some kind of act of worship or allegiance to this world leader, his government, his program, his image, whatever it would be. Now, how does this relate to babies and children? Well, Brandy's question specifically was about babies and children, and here, I think, applies the principle of accountability. You'll notice that I did not say the age of accountability, because the Bible gives no specific age that someone is accountable before God, but the Bible does give a principle of accountability. 
there are many people who are dismissive of this idea of an, of an age of accountability or a principle of accountability in the scriptures. But this is a principle, again, not connected to a specific age, but to a concept, to an idea. We can't say exactly when a child becomes accountable, but we see this principle in many passages. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 35 through 39, God indicates a difference in the moral culpability between children and adults. Let me read this to you. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 35. Surely not one of the men, these men of this evil generation, shall see that good land which I swore to your fathers. Now verse 39. Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. There was a much greater accountability among adults than there was among the children. God allowed the children of that generation to enter into the promised land. He did not allow the adults. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 16 speaks to the same principle. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Again, notice here, Isaiah, speaking as the prophet of the Lord, speaks of this idea that there is an age before children have a full moral culpability. Um, Paul said that he was once alive apart from the law, presumably or plausibly, before he was of age to understand his culpability before God. Romans chapter 7, verse 9, Paul says this, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Uh, and then in verse 11 of Romans chapter 7, he says, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Now, it's absolutely true that we are born with an Adamic nature and that we sin because we are fundamentally sinners by birth. Nevertheless, there's reason to believe that God does not condemn individuals on the basis of the having the Adamic nature alone. I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but I don't think God judges people on the Adamic nature alone. Guilt under their own sins is also a basis for judgment. So without denying the idea of inherited sin or even inherited guilt from Adam, that concept is very clearly taught, for example, in Romans chapter 5 and 6, it can be said that that inherited sin or guilt from Adam is not enough alone to guarantee hell for those who die in the womb, for those who die in infancy, for those who die before they come to an adequate capability to understand their responsibility before God. Now, again, Brandy, I think this is very relevant to the Mark of the Beast question. And so uh, I do not think that a person who receives this mark without knowing, without worshiping, in a true sense, the Antichrist, the beast, uh, his state, his image, I think it's separated from that. So I hope that's helpful for you, Brandy. And thank you for the question. All right, I got a couple announcements before we get in. Why did I close my iPad? I'm going to need it to read the questions. Uh, I got a couple announcements here before we get into the questions from the live chat. And thank you very much for your live chat questions. Uh, here's two announcements. Number one, I'd like you, YouTube family, to be in prayer for uh, someone special to me and to my family and who is a regular viewer of our weekly YouTube question and answer time. And this is my mother-in-law, Gunnel Bergström, uh, in Sweden. She's in the hospital. Uh, they had feared that it might be something very bad. It's not as bad as they have feared, but she's still got some things that they need to address. So if you can remember to pray for Gunnel in the hospital, she's part of our regular YouTube Now, I, I honestly doubt that she's viewing right now. Although, Gunnel, if you are viewing, we love you and we're praying for you. And I'm asking our uh, 
YouTube audience to pray for you. Uh, but if you see this later, please know we love you and we're praying for you for a speedy recovery. And we look forward to coming out and visiting you soon. That's the first thing. Here's the second announcement I want to make. Next week, the Q&A is going to be on Wednesday instead of on Thursday. Uh, we will schedule it like we've scheduled this Q&A. But I do just want you to know that next week, that will be April 19th, the Q&A will be on Wednesday instead of on Thursday. It'll still be at 12 noon Pacific time or West Coast time, but it'll be on Wednesday because I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be on my way to Africa, to both Kenya and Uganda for some conferences and some ministry. And my wife's going to be doing dental ministry. Many of you in our YouTube audience know about that. So anyway, I just want to make that clear to you. We're going to give out some special announcements on social media and such. Hope you can join us, but it'll be on Wednesday next week, April 19th, not on April 20th. Uh, again, still at 12 noon Pacific time. Okay, with that, let's get to the questions that have come in uh, through our various channels. The first one comes from Leanne, who's part of our TWR360 audience. Welcome to our TWR360 audience. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Leanne asked this question. What can I say to people who don't believe Jesus rose from the dead? Well, Leanne, I think that's a very interesting question. And I would divide those people into two categories. First of all, I am assuming that the people who claim that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that these are people who do not claim to be Christians. They do not claim to be believers. And I think that you can just tell them without going into all the details. And let me tell you, there are wonderful books written out there. There is extensive work here on YouTube. You can find amazing video presentations about proof for the resurrection and how it is truly one of the greatest attested facts of the ancient world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I understand if people say that we can't know anything reliably about the ancient world. We can't know anything reliably about Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or Cicero or, you know, whatever figure, Herod, whatever figure you want to come up with. But I'll tell you something. In my perspective, if we can know anything from ancient history, we can know that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And that's simply how we present. This is a historical fact, and this is what's glorious about Christianity, is it is founded on historical fact, not theological or philosophical speculation, but on historical fact. Leanne, that's what I would say to someone who does not believe. Now, if someone claims to be a believer, yet they claim that they don't believe that Jesus really rose from the dead, they need to be warned. They need to be warned that that is like a disqualifying denial of the faith. Um, the early church in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament letters was established on this um, principle, this fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what they preached in their sermons. That's what they presented. So um, it, I would give a, a strong warning that this is a denial of the faith itself to deny that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Even as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we are in fact dead in our sins and destined for hopelessness and judgment. So I know there's been some great videos put out um, uh, just recently, uh, Elisa Childers has had some great stuff recently on uh, the reliability of the resurrection. Uh, guys like uh, Jay Warner Wallace have tremendous stuff on the reality of the resurrection. Uh, Frank Turek is another guy that I would recommend. And I'm sure that my friend Mike Winger has some great stuff on the reliability of the um, resurrection. Okay, let me go on to the next question. Question from Margaret, who asks... 
Hello, Pastor. What is the gospel? And what are the key areas I should address while sharing the gospel to an unbeliever? Margaret, I love your question. Let me state it as clearly as I can. The gospel is the good news. Maybe I should just pause right there. That's what the word gospel means. The word gospel means good news. Okay? The gospel is the good news about what God has done to rescue humanity, men and women, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially what Jesus did at the cross and in his resurrection. That's the good news. Again, I mentioned just before, somebody was asking about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Margaret, I would recommend the first few verses of that chapter to you. Because there Paul very plainly says what the gospel is. He says, let me tell you the gospel I preach. I'm paraphrasing, of course. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, about the first four verses. Let me tell you the gospel that I preach to you. He said, it is this, is that Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures, died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The gospel is rooted in historic events, not in theological speculation, not in philosophies, but on things that really happened. So, um, the key areas you should address is that we all need to be rescued by God. Saved, if you want to use that term. Now, I understand that it can be a very difficult thing to persuade people that they need to be rescued or saved when they don't feel it at all. There's some people in my own life that I'm very close to and are very dear for me, dear to me, and I, I honestly think they just don't perceive that they have any need. They're fine with it being for the people who do sense a need. And uh, this is something that we pray that the Holy Spirit will work within people, a sense of great need. But this is what I, I, I would say to that person or to anybody. We know that in the area of medicine, in the medical world, that it is entirely possible for a person to feel just fine, yet they could have a life-threatening disease or situation in their life that if they don't address, it'll kill them. Sometimes sin is like that. Sometimes the disease of sin and separation from God works in us so obviously that we know we need a Savior. But there's other times when it works, I don't know, behind the scenes, invisibly. And so just as medically speaking, someone can be very close to death and not realize it at the time, so it is with those who uh, are need rescue from sin. So, Margaret, that's what I would say. That the need we have to be rescued and the gracious provision that we have in Jesus Christ. And here's the gospel. I'll say it one more time. The gospel is the good news of what God has done to rescue fallen humanity, men and women, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, especially his death on the cross and his resurrection. Announce that good news, Margaret. That's what you can do for that. Okay, let me go on to the next question here from Chris, who asks, uh, could you please explain John chapter 6, verse 37? All the Father gives to me shall come to me. Do you feel this confirms Calvinism or that there is a free will in a person's response to the gospel? This verse seems like both. Well, Chris, yes, God is at work within people to draw them to himself. I think that the error of some Calvinists, I certainly won't say all by any means, but the error of some Calvinists and some people in the Reformed camp is not that they see and maybe emphasize the role of God in what he does in salvation, how salvation happens from God's perspective. But there are some Calvinists, some 
people within the Reformed camp, who seem to neglect how the work of salvation appears legitimately from a human perspective. And so the impression that they can give, maybe they do this intentionally, maybe it's unintentionally, but the impression that they give is there's nothing you can do. God's either going to save you or not save you. If he saves you, you're fine. If he doesn't save you, that. But you, all you are is a completely passive agent. And if God wants you to believe, he'll make you believe. Now, listen, I, I believe with all my heart that a person cannot believe, a person cannot repent and believe unless God does a prior work in them. But let's make it clear, God won't believe for a person. God won't repent for a person. There is some element of that person's agency involved, some element of their choice. And the way that it feels, and look, God forbid that we would base everything on how things feel to the sinner or to the person coming to Christ. But, but that neither can it be ignored, that experiential element. They, they feel that they can choose to accept it or reject it. Now, somebody can look back across the center and say, listen, God's hand was at work the whole time. I see what he was moving things at the moment. And it was just moving to his wonderful predestined end. Yes, praise the Lord. But that's not how it feels to the person at the time. And so we don't want to deny the primacy of God's work and how no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. That's what Jesus said. We glory in that. However, we also don't want to neglect how God works in the real life of those that he's calling to himself. And those people need to be called to make a decision, to choose for Christ. There's nothing wrong with calling people to make a decision. Now, is it possible that a call to decision can be made theatrically, can be made relying too much on emotion, can be made manipulatively? Yes, yes. But it doesn't mean that you can't make a good call to decision. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. So I hope that answers that for you there, Chris. Um, thank you for that question. Next question comes from Anahui, who asks, God bless from Newport, Washington. What is the difference between the times of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles? Okay. I'm trying to remember the passages that these, I believe Jesus used the phrase, the times of the Gentiles in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24. And... Paul used the phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles, in Romans chapter 11, maybe? Somewhere in there. I think that they're related concepts, but they're not exactly the same thing. In my conception, and again, these are things that brothers and sisters in Christ, there's not this universal agreement on, and I'm when I say this, I'm very aware that, oh, David, you can't tell you, here you are, some dispensationalist talking to us. Well, Yes, I am. I, I am a dispensationalist. I believe that there's a difference between Israel and the church. Okay? If that makes me a dispensationalist, sign me up. I am a dispensationalist. I believe that there's a difference between Israel and the church. And that God's covenant with Israel was not the same as God's covenant, the new covenant, with the people of his redemption, with the church right here, right now. Now, I don't believe that God ever intended it to be so, and I don't believe that salvation is found under the Old Covenant, only as it points to Christ. But anyway, those are complications. But let me say, I believe that the times of the Gentiles describes the time when God has his redemptive focus, not upon Israel, but upon the Gentile world. Now, I use that word advisably, focus. Because does it mean that God doesn't care about the salvation of Israel? No, of course he does. But in his plan of the ages, as it's unfolding right now in real time, if we'll say it, right now we are in the time of the Gentiles when his redemptive focus is upon the Gentiles more so than Israel. I believe that when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, God has appointed a certain number of Gentiles. You know, he, he knows the end from the beginning. 
and God has appointed this certain number of Gentiles, when that fullness has come in, then God will turn once again his redemptive focus back towards Israel. And I believe that that's connected with many things having to do with the end times, with what I would call the 70th week of Daniel, with the catching away of the church, with the last seven years, on and on. And so I would relate the two this way, Anahui. I would say that the fullness of the Gentiles triggers the end of the times of the Gentiles. And the times of the Gentiles ends when God will turn his redemptive focus once again upon Israel. I want to stress that idea of a redemptive focus. The idea that Jewish people can't be saved when God's focus is on the nation's world. Of course they can be saved, and of course God is moving among them. And of course, Gentiles can be saved and will be saved in Jesus Christ when God's redemptive focus is once again set upon Israel. It just has to do with how God has laid things out in his unfolding plan of the ages. Hope that helps you there, Anahui. Let me go to the next question here from Marilee, although I see we're at the bottom of the hour now, and I want to give an announcement, repeat announcement I made before. Next week, our Q&A is not going to be on Thursday. That would be April 20th. Our Q&A is going to be on April 19th. That is Wednesday. It'll still be at 12 noon Pacific time, so it'll be the normal time we have it. But on Wednesday, instead of on Thursday, why? Because my wife and I are flying to Africa on Thursday to do ministry in Kenya and Uganda, both with a conference and my wife's work with dental ministry. So appreciate your prayers for that. Uh, but next week on Wednesday instead of on Thursday. Okay, uh, Marilee asks this question. Or maybe it's Maria Lee. I'm looking at that name. Maria Lee? If I'm mispronouncing your name, a little bit of grace here, Maria Lee. Uh, if a man commits adultery before being a Christian, then he gets divorced, and now both he gets converted and also the other woman does, is he allowed to marry that woman who he adulterated with in the past? Well, Maria Lee, people have been made new creations in Jesus Christ. And I find a very helpful principle that Paul mentions. Oh, good heavens, is it in 1 Corinthians 7 or 1 Corinthians 10? Where he's talking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I think it's 1 Corinthians 10. But Paul gives this principle. He says, let a man remain as he was called. In other words, there is a sense in which salvation in Christ in a sense, pushes a restart on these things. So you, you say, well, um, I was married to this person, but I committed adultery on them, and then they remarried somebody, but then they divorced from that, and now I'm on my third wife. Should I leave my second wife and go back to this, but then I would be that person's second husband or wife? And this, Listen, as God has called you right now today, if there's sin in your past, repent of it. If you were divorced on ungodly reasons or premises, things not permitted by the word of God, then repent. The, the idea that is dangerous in some segments of the Christian world today is the idea that the only way you can repent of such sin is by ending your present marriage and going back and No, but that is trying to repent of a sin by sinning, what's more, sinning again. I've got a whole video on this on my YouTube channel. I think I call it marriage, divorce, and remarriage or something like that. Um, but no, repentance is real. But the idea that the only way to repent of such sin is to divorce your present spouse and go back to a prior spouse, I, I just don't, I don't think that's scriptural. I don't think it's wise. I think that that's trying to fix one sin by committing another sin. So, merrily, I would just simply say, where is a person at today? If they have sin in the past to repent of, let them confess that sin and repent of it. And then whatever their marital situation is right now, if they're married, then let them be the best husband or wife they can be in that marriage, glorifying God in that marriage. If they're single, 
then they can prayerfully consider who they may marry in the Lord. Again, in a way that would honor God. Uh, But uh, they don't have to complicate it with those things from the past. All right, let me go to the next question from Joshua, who asks, Pastor Guzik, who do the five foolish virgins represent in the parable of ten virgins? There seems to be many interpretations. Joshua, good question. Um, I think that that's one of the parables that tends to be over-interpreted. It's very possible for us to over-interpret the parables. And we do that by trying to make every small point of the parable to be rich with theological meaning. And that's usually a trap in interpreting the parables. The parables are intended to communicate a significant meaning. And we can easily get into trouble by assigning great theological significance to every minute aspect of the parable. However, let me just say this. What's the big lesson of the parable of the five foolish virgins? Well, it's just simply this. It's be ready. You you ask, what do they represent in the parable of the ten virgins? They represent those who aren't ready, period. We should be ready. We should be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's one of the reasons why I am uh, dispensational and premillennial, if you want to get down to it, pre-tribulational. One of the reasons, it's just one, but I think Jesus wants us to be ready for his return, ready and waiting for his return. Um, He doesn't want us to say, well, you know what? After we win the whole world to Christ, after we've Christianized every nation, 10,000 years from now, then Jesus will return. Um, Friends, I I don't think that we're going to Christianize the nations uh, anytime in the next year. Let's just be concerned. Could it ever? Well, whatever, but it's not going to happen in the next year. And to me, it's never a good place to say, I can guarantee you that Jesus Christ is not going to return in the next year. Jesus told his people to be ready. And let me add something very quickly on that, just because it's a little bit of a burr under my saddle. It's a little bit of a hobby horse for me right now. People will respond from that camp and they'll say, well, no, no, no. We we need to be ready, not for the return of Jesus, but because we could die at any time and we could appear before Jesus. Any one of us could have a heart attack. Any one of us could get hit by an automobile and we're instantly with Jesus. And so we need to be ready for that. Well, absolutely true. You're absolutely right. But that's not what Jesus was talking about when he said, be ready for his return. Look, let's be honest here. Come on. The parable of the 10 virgins was not telling people to be ready because you could die at any moment. The parable of the 10 virgins being be ready because the bridegroom is returning. And any attempt to make it say, oh, what it's really telling us is we should all be ready to die and appear before Jesus. That's just not what the parable means, period. You're twisting it. I'll go so far to say people who advance it should be a little bit embarrassed that they would advance that idea. Come now, really? You, you know what these parables about readiness are? You know what Jesus' exhortations about readiness? They're readiness for his return, for his second coming. And yes, it is absolutely true that we should be ready to die and meet our Lord at any moment. Praise the Lord for that. That's not what those parables are about. And that's not what Jesus' exhortations to readiness were all about. He didn't say be ready because you might die at any moment. He said, be ready because I am coming quickly. All right, off that hobby horse. Let me go to the next question. Barry asks, how do you succinctly explain to a person that righteousness does not come by the law, yet it is still good to obey God's laws? Okay, Barry. Well, first of all, it's pretty easy to explain that righteousness doesn't come by the law because how good do you gotta be? If, right, if we can earn our own righteousness, um, how good do we got to be? Well, I, I think we got to be perfect. And everybody understands they're perfect. If there's anything people understand, it's that they're not perfect. And so if you have to be perfect to be justified by your own uh, works, then we all know that's not so hard. Now, 
How do you convince people that even though we're not justified, even though we're not put in right relationship with God on the basis of our works, our good deeds, it is still nevertheless important that we honor God with our lives. It's that we should do this in honor to God, in obedience to God, in gratitude to God for all that he's given us. I think there needs to be a little bit of a warning to people in the Christian world. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, Jesus knows better than anybody that we cannot keep his commandments perfectly, that we'll sin. That's why the same Jesus that said, if you love me, keep my commandments, is the same Jesus who spoke by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John and said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. So there is forgiveness, but there should be in the life of the healthy believer a desire to please the Lord, a desire to honor him with the life. And if there is no evidence of that, that's concerning. It's concerning for the person who says, I'm saved, I love Jesus, I just have no interest in obeying him. Brothers and sisters, God's given us a higher calling. So that's simply how I would express it to those people there, uh, Barry. All right, go on to the next question from Soyadra. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Soyadra. Uh, Who asks, blessings, love your teachings. Thanks so much for having enduring word in Spanish. So during the tribulation, a Christian is going to starve to death because we do not have the mark of the beast. Well, Sarajra, uh, let me say, um, first of all, I'm of the opinion that the church will be caught up, taken away to Jesus Christ to meet the Lord in the air, as is described in 1 Thessalonians, before this great tribulation that you mentioned. However, however, it doesn't mean your question's irrelevant. It just means that your question applies to those who come to faith during the Great Tribulation. And it's a very real and relevant question for them, obviously. Well, will they start with it? Soyadra? Some will. Some will. Some will starve to death because they... Um, They suffer under the persecution from the beast and his government. Some will. Many Christians will be martyred during the Great Tribulation. Those who have come to faith after the catching away of the church, many of them will be martyred. So, yeah, that's a a harsh truth. Uh, But it's true. Listen, persecution, adversity, tribulation is something that Christians should be prepared for now. Now. Um, Even though I do not believe that that we, who are believers now, will go through the Great Tribulation, uh, there's there's no short list of trial and tribulation that could await believers today before the catching away of the church, before the Great Tribulation. All right, let me go into the next question here from Leslie, who asks, could you explain 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14? We are saved and sanctified by personal faith in Jesus. Not sure what Paul means, that a spouse is sanctified by their spouse and their children. Okay, Leslie, all right, I'm going to be straight with you. This is a difficult passage. Let me read to you that verse, 1 Corinthians 7, 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Okay, here's the complicated part of your question, Leslie, or the answer to your question. This is commonly, and I think rightfully taken, that this indicates that children are holy, set apart to God, when there is a believing parent in the home. What that exactly means, I don't think we know. The scriptures don't tell us. 
we, we kind of have the sense that it means that while they are still not yet fully accountable, you can see the beginning of the message I did, the beginning of the Q&A, where I talk about this principle of accountability. That I don't believe the Bible talks about an age of accountability, but it certainly talks about the principle of accountability and how children are less accountable before God than adults are, plainly. And that while there is definitely a guilt inherited by Adam, there's reason to believe that God does not judge a person for heaven or hell based only upon the guilt inherited from Adam, but also upon their own sins that they're accountable for. Okay, that's another issue to discuss. But the sense is that before children come to a place of accountability before God, not a specific age, but according to a principle, they are holy, set apart from God by the presence of a believing father or mother. Now, here's the difficulty with that. Paul uses similar terminology, and you're putting your finger on the question there, Lindsay, or uh, yes, uh, Leslie. The difficulty is, is, does that mean also that an unbelieving spouse is saved by the presence of a believing spouse? And, and I would say no, I don't believe so. I believe that right there, Paul is using that idea of sanctified or made holy as somewhat different in application for context. I believe that there is a blessing, that there's something good, that there's a unique goodness that God has for an unbelieving spouse by the presence of a believing spouse in the home. But that there's a whole nother blessing, a whole nother dimension of this that is for the children in a home where there is a believing spouse. And that's the distinction I would make between the two. So I would just say that what is this um, uh, saying, what is this sanctification that they have? That there is something set apart about that home. N not unto salvation for the spouse. You're absolutely right. We're not saved by genetics. We're saved by the person and work of Jesus. Um, but there is something good. There's something holy. There's something special in that home because of the presence of a believing spouse. But I will admit, Leslie, it's a difficult passage. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Jack, who asks, what is the biblical view on the death penalty? Why take a life when there is still hope for someone to find the truth, or is it just capital punishment? Jack, uh, I appreciate your question, and it's kind of fresh on my mind because uh, also on our YouTube channel, I've been teaching through the book of Genesis. And recently, I recorded a teaching from Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter, must have been chapter 8 or 9, where God makes his covenant with Noah and with all of creation and humanity. And in that covenant, God says, um, I will require life from the life of one who sheds it. What God says is he gives to mankind the instruction, the, the, the mandate, if you will, to carry out capital punishment against murderers right there in the early chapters of Genesis as a universal for humanity. Now, it doesn't mean that every killing is appropriate to have the death penalty, but I, I think surely it means that some, that God says that a land is defiled by murders that are not brought to justice. And according to Genesis chapter 7 and 8, in some cases, I'll agree, not all killings are the same, of course. Not all murders are the same. But certainly in some cases, I believe the death penalty is justified. Later on in Romans chapter 13, Paul talks about the authority of the civil magistrate. And he says, has not God given him, or has God given the magistrate, the, the civil ruler, the sword in vain? And, and it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. 
Well, in Paul's day, why would a magistrate, why would a civil ruler have a sword to execute people? Look, I know that this goes against modern sensibilities. And I've read and I've appreciated some of the arguments. to, To me, one of the arguments I'm sympathetic against capital punishment is that it gives the state too much power. And there's people object, it's not fairly applied. Okay, I I get all that. But it's hard to believe that it is just for every murderer to live out their natural days while the person they murdered, their blood cries out for justice. So I I understand this is going against the sensibilities of our modern age. I understand this is something that the Western world has moved on from. They would think it's ridiculous. But I, I have not seen a convincing case biblically against capital punishment. Now, let me just say one more thing before I go into the next question. Capital punishment, the death penalty, exists in the United States, the country that I live in. But it's a mess in the way that it's applied. It's a mess. Someone only goes to uh, their capital punishment, their death penalty, you know, 25 years after the murder's been committed. And friends, that's not justice. That's not right. And there's an argument to be made that it's unfairly applied. And, and uh, I, I don't doubt that there have been at least some cases where uh, someone who was innocent of a crime. was like, So there, there's problems with the death penalty. But I, I don't see how somebody gets around the commandment to Noah, the practice in the Old Testament, and the reinforcement of it by Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 13. So... I'll just leave it with that and go on to the next question from David, who asks, is the meaning or the point of the 10 virgins parable in Matthew chapter 25 that if a person is saved, but afterwards he commits a sin, he will go to hell? Uh, David, no, that's not the point of that term. The point of the 10 virgins parable in Matthew chapter 25 is that believers should be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. That's really the point of it. And um, not that a sin makes somebody lose their salvation. Um, No, it's really that believers should be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. And they should take readiness seriously. All right, folks, we're just about ready to start our lightning round to uh, finish up. I have a colleague, our moderator, who sets up the lightning round. Doesn't ask me for permission ahead of time. He just goes ahead and does it. But I'll take the challenge. I'll come up with it. Let's do the lightning round. But I do want to remind you, next week, the Q&A is on Wednesday, not on Thursday. It's on April 19th. Same time, but on Wednesday instead of Thursday. So God bless you. Click like, and then let me take a sip of coffee and we'll go to the lightning round. Here we go. Peter, in the book of Exodus, why did God want to kill Moses? probably because Moses had disobeyed God in not circumcising his children. God probably gave a specific command to Moses about doing this, and Moses neglected it, and uh, his wife wasn't happy about it either. Thank you, Peter. Uh, From Pitasoni, who asks, is speaking in tongues still necessary for the church today? It is a gift that God gives to the church today. It's not necessary for each individual believer, but it is a gift of God, and those who have it can exercise it to edification. Um, But it is not necessary for salvation or even for a mature Christian life. It's a gift of God. Um, Next question from Alfredo, who asks, Question, are dead unbelievers waiting for the last judgment, or are they already in the lake of fire, hell, described in Revelation 20? Alfredo, they are waiting for the final judgment. They are in the place called, in the New Testament, Hades. In the Old Testament, Sheol, awaiting the final judgment, the final judgment that will happen after the thousand-year reign of Christ, after the millennium, what is called the great white throne judgment mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. It's only after that that people are cast into the lake of fire. Next question from Susan. 
What videos from YouTube do you recommend for the resurrection? Well, Susan, again, I just would name to you some of the people that I would look for. I'd look at Elisa Childers' channel. I'd look at Jay Warner Wallace's channel. I would look at Frank Turek's channel. Uh, Sean McDowell, I bet, has some great videos on the resurrection. And I would look at my friend Mike Winger's channel. Look for those channels there on YouTube. Uh, Pittasoni asks a second question. What is your favorite systematic theology book? And what is it your favorite ministerial leadership book that you'd love to read? Uh, favorite systematic theology book? Um, probably Grudem's Systematic Theology. Probably. Look, I, I'm much more of a biblical theology person than a systematic theology person, but, but Grudem's is good. So I, I, I would recommend uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Uh, and what is my favorite ministerial or leadership book that you uh, love to read? Um, the Jesus Style by Gail Irwin. I'll say it carefully because you want to go on Amazon and buy this if you haven't. It's great for everyday Christians, but it's great for those in ministry especially. The Jesus Style by Gail Irwin. Uh, probably the most helpful book I've read on ministry and leadership. Even though it's not specifically written for ministry and leadership, it's written for the Christian life, but believe me, it's very relevant to ministry and leadership. Uh, Anahui, do you have a video on King Melchizedek? Uh, look in my Hebrews series, Anahui. Uh, there's probably something in my Hebrews series because I have verse-by-verse -verse teaching through the book of Hebrews on the YouTube channel, and certainly that deals with Melchizedek there. Uh, Andrea asks, is it progress if my non-religious, non-believer friends return to traditional houses of worship in an attempt to get right with God? Should I be happy that they are making an attempt to take things seriously, even if they don't go all the way? Yes, I think it's progress. Not certainly, you know. A, a person can make some initial steps towards God, towards Jesus Christ, without following through. But we all know how it is, Andrea, that... Uh, Initial steps often result in further steps. And so we should be grateful. We should be praying for such um, future steps from people that we know and love and care about. And then the final question in the lightning round. Are we sure, moderator, that there's not going to be? First time ever, the moderator's in the same room with me. But he's silent. Last question here. Uh, from Tony. What are your thoughts concerning if Adam truly understood the significance of his actions calling the falling, causing the fallen state of man? And do you think he thinks of it daily in the spiritual state that he is now? Tony, I, I would just say that I think it would be impossible for Adam to fully appreciate the consequences of the sin that he did. I, it's mind-boggling to think of it, isn't it? I, I just don't see how Adam could have any capability, any resource for believing, for understanding that. So, Tony, I would say no. I don't think that uh, he was actually capable of understanding the full significance of his sin uh, and the repercussions it have. Now, you ask an interesting question. Then why would not Adam in the life beyond be tormented day and night thinking about what he did? Um, I would just say this, that he would know that he messed things up as the first Adam, but find great comfort in the fact that God has brought redemption through the second Adam. His tears are wiped away in heaven, just like everybody else's tears. So that's going to be it for today's Q&A. Thank you for joining me from Tennessee next week. Please join us on Wednesday instead of Thursday. We'll put out stuff on social media. We'll set up this uh, thing ahead of time. But uh, so pleased that you could join us. God bless you. And um, I hope that maybe if you need some Bible resources, you'll go to EnduringWord.com or hunt around our YouTube channel if any of that's helpful for you. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for liking, doing those things that are supposed to help. Look, I, I let other people take care of that. I just want to go forward with the ministry that God's given me. So thank you so much, 
and so pleased that you could join us. Bye-bye, and we'll see you at a later time. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.